Well, let us turn again to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23. And we'd like to consider especially these words between verses 39 and 43, this account of the the conversion of this thief on the cross. He comes in verse 42 to this prayer. He said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Dear congregation, this morning we considered a birth in the birth of Samson, the the mighty deliverer of God's people in the time of the judges. This evening we come to the, the other end of life and we come to a death. And certainly, as the Scripture tells us, there is a time to be born and there is a time to die. And we are confronted in this passage, as we are in in our own life's experience, with the reality of death. It is appointed unto man once to die. And you might look at this, and indeed you can look at this, and think, well, this death is very unusual. This is not the the normal way to die. The death of this man is very uh, unusual. And certainly at at the outward level, that is true. Uh, this, This man is a thief. He is a malefactor. I suppose children, that would just be a way of saying this is a bad man. Uh, a malefactor is someone who is, who is bad, is someone who has done evil, done bad things uh, his whole life long. He's a malefactor, and he, he was with Barabbas, it would seem, and he, he was a thief, and so he is, he is here, and he has been crucified, and you, you say, well, this is, at the outward level, this is very different, and that is true. But what I want you to see and to realize this evening that really he's not as different as we might think. We may not think of it this way, but apart from the grace of God, we, we, we are born on a cross, not literally, of course, but we are born certainly under condemnation. Uh, we are children of wrath by nature. We, we deserve to die. And, and this is what makes the, the thought of death so solemn and indeed so, so necessary for us to consider. Our problem, so to speak, is not simply that we are going to die. Our our, our real problem is that we are born under condemnation. Uh, We sing with the psalmist, I am evil, born in sin. And it's not just then that we are born in sin, but we are on our way by nature, apart from the grace of God, to, to die in the same condemnation. 
The words of Jesus. If ye believe not that I am He, you will die in your sins. What what an awful expression. To die in your sin. To die certainly with the presence of sin, but to die in the guilt of sin, under the power of sin, under the condemnation of sin. If ye believe not that I am He, you will die in your sins. My dear friend, you may not have considered this until now, but we, but we are on a cross, and we deserve to be there. The Scripture, the law, the law of justice that the Scripture gives us is this, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. It, it's, it's the way of saying the punishment should fit the crime. And when the Spirit of God comes and convinces us of our sin, then we are convinced with this thief, I am in this condemnation justly. The punishment does fit the crime. And you come to realize, as this thief does, I have no rights, I have no appeal, I have no opportunity even to make promises of better resolutions. If anything was true of a man on a cross, he had nothing left. He had no rights. He had nothing. But, but here then is what makes this account of this dying thief not only so necessary, but so, so relevant and indeed so, so glorious and so hopeful for sinners is here is a man who while on this cross of just condemnation is a man who found mercy, is a man who found forgiveness, is a man who came to be a trophy, a trophy to the free, the sovereign, the powerful grace of God in Jesus Christ. And if the thief is saying anything to us this evening, he is saying, there is mercy for God for the greatest of sinners. He is saying there is a way to heaven, even from the very gates of hell. He is saying that there there is mercy for the most hopeless of sinners, for the most hardened of sinners, for the most desperate of sinners, for the the longest of sinners, the most unlikely of converts, there is mercy. There is forgiveness with this God that He may be feared. What a glorious, glorious gospel this gospel of the grace of God is. And this gospel then is saying to you and to me as we look at this thief, however hopeless you may feel your case is this evening, however unlikely you consider yourself to be, however desperate, however long the gospel is saying, come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord, though your sins be like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow, though they be red like crimson, they shall be as the wool. As we look at this dying thief, we see a way to heaven from the very gates of hell. Firstly, we want to consider the gates of hell beneath. Secondly, 
the great mystery in the middle. And thirdly, the gateway to heaven above. The gates of hell beneath, the great mystery in the middle, and the gateway to heaven above. Firstly here, the gates of hell. Well, what a, what a terrible scene this is. What an awful scene. Even at the human level, we have three executions and execution by crucifixion. Crucifixion was one of the most cruel, most torturous ways ever invented to end a person's life. A victim is thrown on their back. The wounds from the lashes of the scourge would likely tear open. Again, the, the wounds on the back, which would be contaminated with dirt. The large nails were then driven through the wrists, aimed at hitting a nerve, which would cause excruciating pain way up the arm and through the body. The weight of the man pulling down on the outstretched arms and shoulders would again be excruciatingly painful. It would not allow a person to breathe except they push up, which was also uh, extremely painful. This all resulted in shallow breathing. Really, it was a slow suffocation. Every effort was an agony. As the breath became more tired, leading to asphyxiation, a slow suffocation. Physically, physically, this is horrendous. Physically, people would look at this and they would say, this is like a hell on earth. And yet, my friends, the sobering reality is that even this is not hell. The sobering reality is that those who are in hell would now do anything to spend an eternity on one of these crosses. Hell, that awful place, that real place, that place that we should never speak about in a, in a cold or indifferent way, that place that is prepared for the devil and his angels, a place of unimaginable pain and sorrow, a place the Bible describes as outer darkness, a place where the worm of conscience never dies. As horrific as the pain is for these two thieves, their worst is yet to come. These men are in the final hours, the final moments of their life here, their time on mercy's ground. They are about to enter the eternal world. My dear friends, you have a soul that is destined never, never, never to go out of existence. And that's the reason we read Isaiah 14. Isaiah 14, albeit speaking about the king of Babylon, the one who exalted himself and said he would sit like God on the throne on high. Yet it gives us such a solemn, such a sobering account of, as it were, the other side. There in Isaiah 14, verse 9, this king of Babylon, this Christless soul going into a lost eternity and hell from beneath, we are told, is moved to meet you at your coming. There is a meeting for this man. 
It stirs up the dead for thee, even all the chief ones of the earth. It has raised it, raised, it has raised up their thrones, from their thrones all the kings of the nations, and they shall speak and say unto thee, Art thou become weak like us? Art thou become like unto us? Oh, how different. How different to the soul who, having trusted in Christ, goes into Emmanuel's land. There is joy in heaven over a sinner who repents on earth. But what joy ushers in the saint, the one who has believed in Jesus? They shall be brought with gladness great, Psalm 45 tells us, and mirth on every side. Everlasting joy is upon their head. The difference is incalculable. But here we are at these gates of hell. And, and you come back, as it were, to this side of the grave, just moments before these men are going to go there, it would seem. And, and you, you, you feel, don't you, when you read this passage and you read the accounts of the, the crucifixion of Christ and the other malefactors, you feel, you feel, yes, how close to hell this, this must be. The chief priests, the religious people mocking Christ, the elders mocking Christ, saying, save yourself, you who saved others, if you be the king of Israel, come down from the cross and we will believe in you. He trusted in God. Let God deliver him now if he will have him. This is the king of glory. This is God's own son. This is the brightness of his father's glory. And they are, they are mocking and they are taunting and they are making songs. And then we read these words in Matthew 27, 44, the thieves also. The thieves also which were crucified with him, cast the same in his teeth. Here is the Prince of Glory. Here is Emmanuel, God with us. Here is the one the angels worship. Can you imagine the angels, the astonishment as the angels watch on and look at their Lord and their God, the majesty of heaven, being taunted. Don't you realize who this is? And here are these thieves, these thieves, and with the few shallow breaths that they have left, they cast the same in his teeth. Oh, the wickedness of sin, the hardness of sin, the hardness of unbelief, to have only a few moments left to live and to use the few shallow breaths left to mock Christ. Well, let's think about this thief on the cross. From all we can tell of this man, this is a man who has not taken religion seriously. His whole life, it would appear. It's quite possible growing up somewhere in Jerusalem or in Judea at least, that this man would have had some knowledge of the God of Israel and the ways of the God of Israel. It's quite possible. He sang the same psalms that you were and I were singing a few moments ago, the psalms of David. And yet, at the end of his life, here's the description, children, of this man at the end of his life. He is a malefactor. He is a bad man. He is someone 
whose whole life is characterized by this description. He is evil. He is a bad man. And the law of the land has seen fit to give him this ultimate form of punishment. But, but look, something happens. Something absolutely unexplainable, inexplicable from, from a human perspective. There is a change in this man. Suddenly, a, a, a seriousness comes over him. Suddenly, his, his guilt begins to weigh on him. It becomes real to him. And now, the mocking gives way to mourning. And verse 40, he says, Dost not thou fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we receive the due rewards of our deeds. What a remarkable change. There is now in this man a deep conviction of sin, a change of mind concerning his sin. Verse 40, we receive the due reward of our deeds. Now, we look at crucifixion and think, this surely is too extreme for a thief, for anyone. But here he's saying, we receive the due rewards of our deeds. And what's so instructive here is is it's not just the people he sinned against. You see where his mind goes. Dost not thou fear God? God. Suddenly the fear of God is here. The, the awareness of the reality of the God against whom he has sinned, the God with whom he has to do, the God he possibly, quite possibly heard about on his mother's knee, a God who will bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil, but certainly hear this consciousness of God. God is a reality to this man suddenly. Against thee, he's almost saying, the only have I sinned. I have done this evil in thy sight. And he speaks then about his condemnation and he says, it is right. It is just. We are in this condemnation. He says, justly, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, punishment fitting the crime. And he's saying, it is just. And here we believe he's not just looking at the Roman cross, but he's seeing the hell that suddenly appears to be moving underneath and opening up for him, ready to receive him. This awful, awful condemnation, this eternal misery and woe. And he says, it's right, it's just, because I've sinned against God. And you think to yourself, well, what a terrible place for a person to find himself. Yes. But is it not also true that there was never, there had never been a better time and there was never a better place for this man than here and now 
if the Lord brings you to hard places and hard providences and painful providences, but providences that make you stop and become aware of God, and God becomes that great reality of you, and you are convinced of sin, that sin isn't a peripheral problem, but sin is an evil that I have done, and this condemnation is just. That's a good place. It's a hopeful place. We see this now in our second point, the gates of hell beneath, but suddenly the great mystery in the middle. The great mystery in the middle. In, in, in John chapter 19, verse 18, we read, where, speaking of Calvary, where they crucified him, and two other with him, on either side one, and Jesus in the midst. Jesus in the midst. In the midst of these two malefactors, in the midst of these two wicked men, Jesus in the midst. Does Isaiah not say in chapter 53, he was numbered with the transgressors? He suffered among these sinners. He, he, he is here with them at their end, he is on the middle cross. The cross that is reserved for the great, the greatest sinner, the place where Barabbas should have been. You can well imagine these thieves thinking Barabbas was the ringleader. Barabbas is the one that led us to do these things. Barabbas should be here. The middle cross is the place for the greatest sinner. What is he doing here then, this person? Hugh Martin writes in his shadow of Calvary that when it says, now Barabbas was a robber, it's telling us that in the eyes of heaven, though Christ has no sin of his own personally, yet by imputation, Christ is more heavily laid with sin, yes, than even Barabbas himself. Now Barabbas was a robber. Christ in the midst physically but Christ in the midst, savingly. You see, it's not just the horizontal level with the two on either side where Jesus is in the midst. He is also, do you see him? He is in the midst of heaven, between heaven and earth. Yes, between heaven above and hell beneath. There is one thing keep sinners from going down to hell. Jesus hanging on the cross between God and man. Jesus taking the sin. Jesus taking the guilt. Jesus taking the punishment. Jesus taking the crimes. Jesus taking the curse. Jesus drinking the cup of divine wrath without mixture. And as he hangs on this cross, you see Jesus in the midst of sinners. You see him in the midst of the curse. You see him in the midst of great darkness, in the midst of great trouble. You see him in the midst of devils. The devils are here. You see him in this hour that is the hour of, the, of darkness. Jesus in the midst, but not. Jesus in the midst, not as a helpless victim. 
He is not here as a helpless victim. He is here as the conqueror. He is here as the king. He is is here as the one who is destroying death. He is is here destroying the works of the devil. He is here pulling out the sting from death. He is here saying, oh, death, I will be thy plagues. Oh, grave, I will be thy destruction. And repentance shall be hidden from mine eyes. What a mystery Calvary is. What a mystery. The angels, again, to think of them peering down, looking at this. Oh, how they had looked on in amazement. These celestial beings seeing their creator, a creature in the incarnation, seeing the eternal one become an infant of day, seeing the one who stretched the heavens out and sits upon the circle of the earth, suddenly contracted to a span in the womb of the virgin, but what must be the greatest wonder of all, As Alexander Stewart of Cromarty said, what I cannot but believe to be the greatest wonder of all is that he before whom the angels veil their faces and say, holy, holy, holy Lord God of hosts, the whole earth is full of thy glory, that he would consent to be made sin for his people who knew no sin, that he would suffer the most ignominious of deaths deaths as though he were the greatest of sinners, although he was no sinner. What a mystery. Jesus in the midst. You see him then in the midst of these two thieves, on either side, one. But don't you see at Calvary, not on either side, one, but really the whole world is here. Every person who has ever been Every person who will ever be, every person here this evening, every person alive today is on a cross. We come into this world justly condemned because of our sin. On this side, on that side, many. And Jesus in the midst, on this side, a condemned man. On that side, a condemned man. There is no difference at that level, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We are all on one of these two crosses. It's true that we are condemned justly for our sins, but look at what makes the difference. What makes the difference is Jesus in the midst. This is the question. What are you doing with Jesus, who is called Christ? He's in the midst of sinners horizontally. He's in the midst of sinners vertically between God and the the sinful people. He's in the midst of sinners experientially in the hearts and lives of people. That's what we see here in our third point when we see the gateway to heaven. We see Jesus in the midst of the heart of this penitent thief. It is such a wonderful, glorious thing to see. Psalm 22, that psalm of the cross, speaking of the enemies, the bulls of Bashan, the the songs of the drunkards, suddenly says in verse 17, I can tell my bones, the dehydration, his bones showing, 
And then he says, as he looks at those around him, they look and they stare at me. And that's what they were doing. It's what we read in Luke 23. They look and they stare at him. But is it not true that there are a people who are looking and staring at him savingly? Is that not the description of every child of God that they come in a day of grace to look as it were and to stare at this man on the middle cross? That's what happened to this thief. That's what explains this change. He began to look and to stare by faith at Jesus of Nazareth. Now it's interesting to Try to put yourself in the, in the mind of this thief as best we can from the Scriptures and think, what did he see? What did he hear? Faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. What did this man know? He possibly knew something of what his mother taught him, but we're not told that. We don't know that. What did he hear then? What, what made him cry out, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom? Whatever gave him this idea that this man on the cross was a king with a kingdom, that he could remember him? Well, certainly this man, this thief, began to see a glorious thing. He began to see the sinlessness of Jesus Christ criminals go on crosses. But there's something about this man. He never did anything wrong. Did he hear Pilate? It's possible he heard Pilate say, I find no fault with this man. Many bore witness of his innocence in, the verse, in verse 27, we read of a great company following him of people and of women, which also bewailed and lamented him. But this man, anyhow, at the end of verse 41, he comes to see this man has done nothing amiss. This is a spotless, holy, harmless, undefiled man. He's not like other men came to see his sinlessness. He came to see his meekness. He, this is not an ordinary man. There's something so different about him. Oh, he's certainly different than the man I thought was going to be there, than Barabbas, who was a robber. But more than that, he's different to us. He, 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 he's different to he's, the, way, the way he speaks to the daughters of Jerusalem. It's solemn, but it's so as they weep for him. He says, daughters of Jerusalem, verse 28, weep not for me, but weep for yourselves, weep for your children. Here, here's a man who's saying, care for others. And then in verse 34, he says, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. What is he saying? What, kind, what manner of man is this? Father. This is the son then. This is the son of the one he is praying to. Forgive them, he says. Who says that? Who has power on earth to forgive sins? Forgive them. 
This man, this thief, realizes is the son. This man is the savior. He is able to forgive. Father, forgive them. He sees his sinlessness. He sees his meekness. He, he hears the testimony of, of his enemies. The rulers, they sneer. They, they mock. They say, he saved others. Now, that's true. Maybe he had heard of this man. He saved the blind. He gave them sight. He saved the lame. He, he made them walk. Yes, he saved those who were dead, like Lazarus, and gave them life again. He did. He, he saved others. But what's this? Himself, he cannot save. He cannot save himself. Why? He saved others. Saving others. And then in verse 35, someone says, the soldiers say, Let him save himself if he be the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of David, the chosen one of God, if he be the Christ. If thou be the Christ. And then verse 37, if thou be the King of the Jews. You can imagine him putting this all together. Save thyself. And on the superscription in three languages, Greek and Latin and Hebrew for a whole world that's watching. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. This is who he claims to be. This is what he says of himself. He is the Son. He claims to be the King of the Jews. He claims to be the Savior. Forgive them. And then it's as though the whole of nature gives its amen to this. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky proclaims the work of his hands. But now the rocks are witnessing and they rend and the earth begins to quake and the sun refuses to shine. And the eyes of this man's understanding, what a picture, in the darkness, in the thick thick darkness of Calvary, with the darkness, the outer and utter darkness of a lost eternity opening up before him suddenly. It was never so bright. Suddenly the sun of righteousness rises with healing in his wings and light floods into this man's soul and he sees and believes that this man hanging beside him is the Son of God, the Christ of God, the Savior of the world. And he turns to this, to this man wearing a crown. Yes, now a crown of thorns on his head, but this man who is increasingly becoming the object of his hope and his affection and his humble request, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. What a prayer. Lord, I'm but a worm, but thou art the king. Thou art the king of glory. Thou art Lord. Remember me with this shallow breath now. Remember me 
Prayers are not measured for their length, but they are surely weighed for their depth. And here is a prayer with depth. Remember me, speak for me, intercede for me, help me. When thou comest into thy kingdom, it is absolutely absurd to speak this way to a man on a cross. But this is no ordinary man. This man is a king. This man, though on a cross, he will come forth victorious over death. He has a kingdom. Remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And suddenly Calvary becomes a palace. And the cross a throne of judgment. And with a look full of grace and tenderness and love and power, the king proclaims, Verily I say unto thee, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Do you hear the echo to this man's prayer? Lord, he said, Verily I say unto thee, Remember me, he had said, Thou shalt be with me. When thou comest into thy kingdom, today thou shalt be with me. When thou comest into thy kingdom, thou shalt be with me in paradise. With me. The other thief had tried to put himself with Christ, but he had tried to put himself with Christ in sin. If thou be the Christ, he said, save thyself and us. We're all here in this together. Save thyself and us. And the second thief, the penitent thief, he rebukes him and he says, no, this man Jesus, he has done nothing. He is not with us. You and me, we are in this condemnation. We are together in this condemnation. But do you see what the Lord does? He turns to the penitent thief and he says, no, you're not with him. You're with me. Today, literally, you with me in paradise. You with me. For which cause, the writer to the Hebrews says, speaking after, speaking about the sanctification, he who sanctifies and they who are sanctified are all of one. For which cause? He is not ashamed to call them brethren. What joy this must have brought the Savior. What joy in, in the midst of the song of the drunkards, in the midst of the darkness, in the midst of the shame and the disgrace and the loneliness to suddenly discern as he alone can discern that cry, though so shallow, yet deep and real, that word, Lord. Lord, he heard the cry of faith. And that cry, though so shallow, so weak, he heard in it the prayer of the destitute. The prayer of the destitute, it says of Christ in Psalm 102, he surely will regard. 
He heard the prayer of faith. He heard the sinner and saw the sinner who was fleeing for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before him in the gospel. How it would have gladdened the Savior's heart to hear the words of faith. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. And him that cometh to me, though he's a malefactor, though he's on his last breaths, though he has just been cursing me, him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. There's joy in heaven when one sinner repents, but there's joy here at Calvary. He, speaking of the Savior, shall see of the travail of his soul, the suffering that he is going through, the pains of hell that he is going through. What is the result? What is the fruit? He shall see of the travail of his soul. Here it is, a sinner crying out, Lord, remember me. But what joy for the first time, for the first time in this man's experience, this thief on the cross, joy floods into his soul. He had never read Paul's letter to the Romans, but he knew its theology at this moment. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand. And yes, though we're on a cross, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Don't you think that thief would have resonated with what Paul went on to write? For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for who? For the malefactors, for the ungodly, for scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Peradventure for a good man, some would even dare to die, but God commendeth his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners on the cross justly, Christ died for us. Well, many lessons yield themselves from such a glorious trophy of grace. Surely this shows us the power of Christ to save the worst of sinners. Christ is able to save to the uttermost, Hebrews 7 tells us, all who come unto God through him, through Christ. And, and if ever there is an uttermost sinner, it's here. The uttermost of crimes, the uttermost of guilt, the uttermost in terms of the point of life, the uttermost in terms of how close he is to hell. And yet you see Christ in weakness, crucified in weakness. And you think, what power does he have here? What strength does he have here with such a load of, of guilt and, and sin upon him? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? My strength is dried up. What strength does he have to deal with this thief beside him? He has all the power of God unto salvation. He is able to save to the uttermost all that come unto God through him. He is able to pardon the worst of sinners. 
the most difficult, the most hardened, the most unlikely, the worst of crimes, the, 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 the greatest and most aggravated of guilt, he can open. He can open heaven's door. What power is in Christ to save sinners? The thief is saying to you. He's also saying that salvation is by free grace alone. What else could possibly bring this thief to Emmanuel's land? This thief, children, this thief who could never in faith open physically the Bible, his hands pinned against the cross, nailed to the cross. This man who never in faith said with joy and gladness in my soul, I hear the call to prayer, our feet will stand within thy courts. This man who had never got down on his knees to pray a prayer of faith, what can he do now? He can't make promises that he'll try hard do better. He can't claim any experience of grace whatsoever in his past life. What can possibly bring this man to heaven? There's no appeal to merit in his prayer, only mercy. Lord, remember me. And how does Christ reply? In the reply, there is no qualification. There is no condition. There is no penance. There is no purgatory. In the prayer, in the, in the answer of Christ, there is simply this, mercy, grace. When thou, when I confessed transgression, then thou forgavest me. It's free grace. And lastly, not only does this show us Christ's power to save that salvation is by grace alone, it tells us that there is no room either for presumption or for despair. Nobody can look at the penitent thief and despair of the grace of God. But nobody can look at the other thief who heard what, this, what the other thief heard too. Nobody can look at the, the other thief, the impenitent thief, and presume upon a deathbed conversion or anything like that. Remember in Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, ignorance crosses the Jordan River. He gets all the way up to the gates of the celestial city, but he has no scroll. And so the angels bind him hand and foot and cast him into outer darkness. And Bunyan says so solemnly there, so I saw in my dream that there is a way to hell from the very gate of heaven, from sitting under the gospel, under sermons that show Christ and his grace and his glory, to be on a cross beside the suffering Savior and yet to cast insult at him. There is a way to hell from the very gate of heaven. But the thief on the cross, the penitent thief, he's telling us this evening there is a way to heaven from the very gate of hell. What will the lost in hell say when they hear those who 
heard the gospel, come there. Or you become like one of us. You who heard the gospel. You who heard of Christ. And you who refused him your whole life long. Or you become like one of us. We never heard the gospel, you did. You wonder if he's the man who went to hell. What did he say? What did they say to him? We thought there were two of you coming. Where is the other? I heard him say, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And the man on the middle cross, though with shallow breath, words that were so strong and powerful and glorious, I heard him say, verily, I say unto thee, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. What a surprise you might think when the saints of heaven saw this man there. What did they say? Are you become like one of us? Tell us, would they ask? Tell us about your experience. Tell us about your cross experience. He would say this, God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of the middle, the cross of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, by whom I am crucified unto the world and the world unto me. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord God, we thank Thee for Thy free and sovereign grace. We pray Thee, O Lord, that As we look at this thief, this dying thief who rejoiced to see that fountain in his day, we pray, O Lord, that we would see that glorious Savior who who was born so that he would suffer and die, the just for the unjust, that he might bring them to God. We thank Thee for Jesus Christ, the second Adam, who restored what the first Adam took away. Take us to our homes in safety this evening, we pray. Keep us safe in this week. We pray all of of this for Jesus' sake. Amen.